We're in our study on uh, seven churches of Revelation, and uh, the two churches we're going to look at today are special because in the midst of the storm, they're both patted on the back by Jesus and said, good job, good job, keep doing what you're doing. But you're going to see two churches who experienced tremendous heartache and trouble and strife, and um, to that, I want to read this quote to you by G.K. Chesterton. And G.K. Chesterton once said, uh, the only courage worth calling courage must necessarily mean that the soul passes a breaking point and yet does not break. And I think that accurately describes these two churches. That may accurately describe your life right now. This whole idea of things getting so hard, the pain so intense, life so just persecuted, a struggling, attempting, and yet in the midst, right when you think, I can't take any more, I'm going to break, I'm going to give, I'm going to cave, you don't. And G.K. Chesterton said, that's, that's courage. And that's what you're going to find in these two churches. To bring those of you who are visiting up to speed, um, this is the book of Revelation, a vision by God to Jesus, to John, I guess you would say to an angel, to John, and John writes down what he sees. Revelation chapter 1, we're told, we're described Jesus, what he looks like, and um, I don't want you to think of Revelation 1, the description literally is what John looked up in heaven and he saw Jesus seated on the throne and a literal sword is coming out of his mouth and his eyes were literally bright and glowing and his feet were literally bronze. Uh, if you were to have that perspective, you'd probably be thinking wrongly about this. I say that because artists over the years have tried to put together a literal translation of what Jesus would have looked like. And, and it's really kind of funny. Maybe one of these points I'll show you. You can Google image it, Jesus Revelation 1. You'll see all kind of like, wow, that would have been weird. And maybe that's literally what happened. I don't know. But um, my guess is what really happened is Jesus revealed himself to John. And whatever it is that John did actually see, he tried to capture it and put it in a language that was real for each of these seven churches. And remember, each of these seven churches are real churches in real cities and a real place and a real time. And the things they're really dealing with, what John sees of Jesus is real for them. And you're going to see that today. Jesus knows them so specifically and intimately. He is very, very, very attuned to their life. And that should encourage those who need encouraged, and it should terrify those who need a little bit of a rebuke. So there are seven churches represented by seven lampstands. The seven lampstands are the old, kind of what you would think of when you look at menorah, described well in Exodus and Numbers and Leviticus. Each of the lampstands is a church, and each church has an angel over it. This could be a bishop. A bishop would have been like this. A bishop would have been, uh, there were small house churches in towns, and a church was began in a home, and as that church grew and it multiplied to another home, you'd need an eldership over both, and over time you'd have churches meeting in multiple homes, and there would be a bishop who would be kind of over all of them. The other possibility is of like a pastor, like me, somebody who is responsible for a church. I'm not the only responsible person for this church, but it might have been written to a person like me. But we, haven't, we didn't really see this kind of pastorate like we look at in my role today. It did come about for a couple hundred years after Revelation, so we don't know if it was in place by the time John wrote Revelation. The reason I say that is it could be a spiritual being. In the next couple of weeks, I'll talk more about what those are and why it's important, and you could pick which one you want, and I don't really care. But John writes the seven letters to seven churches with seven angels or messengers of God over each of the churches. They have seven things in common, and all of that is relevant as we dig in now to this first church. Here we go. Revelation. Actually, we're at the second church, sorry. Revelation chapter 2, verse 8. If you have our app, by the way, the outline is in the app, and I think I've done the best yet today to follow it. 
I'm just saying. You could teach an old dog new tricks. All right, write this letter to the angel of the church in Smyrna. This is the message from the one who is first and last, who is dead, was dead, and is now alive. First and last. Do you guys remember that from Revelation 1? Jesus said before he says, I'm the first and last, he says, I am the Alpha and the Some of you remember this. Alpha and Omega are the first letter and the last letter of the Greek alphabet. Jesus is just saying, before anything, I am. In fact, you'll notice throughout Revelation this phrase, I am the God who is and the God who was and the God who is still to come. Notice he starts in the present. Why is that important? Because if your view of God is that he's a God who is active only in the past, then you maybe don't think he's wise enough or powerful enough or knowledgeable enough or loving enough to help you today. But if he is the God who is and the God who was and the God who is still to come, what Jesus is saying is throughout every point in human history, in your life, in your struggle, I've been there. I know. I'm the beginning and the end. I'm the first and the last. And then he says, notice there, who was dead and is now alive. This is easy. He's referring to his what? Death, burial, resurrection. This is a simple one, but it's so much deeper and more profound than that. Why? Well, the word Smyrna, you'll notice that there's another word that we transliter- transliterate out of that. Let's do it really slow, see if you can catch it. Smyrna. Did you catch it? It's not a cat purring. It's myrrh. Let me show you a picture real quick. Well, here's what myrrh looks like. Ready? It's pretty unimpressive, isn't it? It's like dried raisins, except you don't want to eat it because it would taste gross. It is not a fruit. It's a spice, and the spice in that day was used to help uh, prepare a body for death. Now, if I say the word myrrh, for those of you who are Christians, grown up in churches, what's the first thing that comes to mind? Everybody just about says frankincense. Some say golden frankincense, which I think is almost funny that that's like our attachment. Here's why. For those of you new or visiting, you don't know what the heck we're talking about. Matthew chapter 2, it says this, verse 11. They entered the house, these are the wise men, and they saw the child with his mother Mary, and they bowed down and they worshiped him. The hymn is Jesus. Then they opened their treasure chests and they gave him baby Jesus, sweet little baby Jesus, two and a pounds lying in a major or wherever he was, with gifts of gold, frankincense, and Smyrna or myrrh. The words are not synonymous, but they are so closely linked that that's what you would think of in ancient Smyrna, because in Greek, they're essentially the same word. Now, this is important because in this day, this is really weird. These wise men come from afar, and they bring these three gifts. The pastors and priests have been pointing this out for years, and these three gifts mean something. Gold is for a king. Frankincense is for a priest, and myrrh was used in death. Who gives a baby funeral garb? Imagine today your your best friend goes into labor, and you bring her in a package, I don't know, a bag, I don't even know what this looks like, of, uh, that's just sick, of fluid, of embalming fluid. You're like, I just wanted to give you this great gift. It's because one day, your baby's going to die. <laughs> Weird, right? Unless in that day it had value, which ended up becoming really relevant in Jesus' birth, by the way, they had to sell these things to escape King Herod's decree to kill babies. But in addition to that, what if it's actually prophetic? 
What if it actually points to something that here's this baby who's prophesied to be king, but this king, though born and alive, is now going to die. And here you have Smyrna, this city whose name means myrrh, and myrrh in that day is one of the spices, sometimes 75, even up to 200 pounds of spices, and myrrh is one of those key spices used to preserve the body, since they didn't have embalming, for death. Well, why is that relevant to what Jesus is saying? Because in Revelation 2, verse 8, he says, I was once what? Some of you got that. Some of you didn't. That's all right. There'll be lots of plenty of tests for you to pass today. Pass one and you're good, all right? Because I was once dead, but now I'm alive. It's a statement of I know what's happening in your culture, but even more importantly, that is what happened in my life. Now, I'm about to give you one of those really cool kind of biblical facts that some of you are going to go, that's just cool. Some of you are going to go, huh? And if I do it well, those who go, huh, will just be able to move on and act like they never heard it. And those who eat it up will be like, oh, I'm writing that down. So here we go. The city of Smyrna was devastated at some point prior to Jesus coming the first time. We don't know when exactly, but it was before, it was in the hundred or so years before. And in fact, it was so obliterated, it was completely removed from the map. And then suddenly in that first century, it was reborn again. In fact, the Greek philosopher Aristides, if you want to go look this stuff up, he actually wrote about Smyrna and he compared it to the phoenix. You remember the phoenix? Anybody know what the phoenix is? I don't mean the, the basketball team although there would be a connection, the Phoenix Suns, right? And their logo is a bird because it's a bird. And this bird, depending on which ancient writing you're writing about, it lives 500, 800, whatever, 1,000 years, and then it dies. And what happens after it dies? It raises again. Oh, that's really cool, isn't it? And if you go look this stuff up in some of the writings, by the way, the Phoenix appears in ancient Egypt, and it's kind of morphed over the years. In fact, even Christians claimed the Phoenix in kind of the medieval period around 800 to 1100 AD, they claimed the Phoenix as one of their symbols because they used it to symbolize and communicating the gospel to other people, this idea of dying and raising again. So Christians are constantly taking things in their culture and redeeming it, and that's what Jesus is doing here. Here's the point. Aristides, a Greek philosopher called Smyrna, compared it to the Phoenix because it was a city that was once dead and is now alive. And Jesus writes to them and says, I was once dead and was, am now alive. Also a little interesting factoid. You'll win a Trivial Pursuit game maybe with us someday. Myrrh is one of the spices connected to the resurrection of the Phoenix. Why is any of this relevant? Because Jesus is looking at a real church in a real city in a real place in a real time and he's saying to them, I'm well aware of what's going on among you. I know. And if nothing else today, maybe that's the thing you need to hear. You may think, see, we have this idea that God started the world through evolutionary, random evolutionary processes, things that just been carrying on as they always do. One day Jesus will come back or everything will come to an end and that's not exactly it. In fact, Jesus is making clear, I know your city, I know your town, I know your struggle, I know your people, I know your place, I know exactly what's going on among you, and I'm with you. I love you. Revelation chapter 2, verse 9. In fact, he says, I know about your suffering and your poverty, but you are rich. Now let's just stop there before we move on. There's a couple words for poverty in the Greek in the New Testament, and one of them is the word we, we would say penne or penny, I, and I didn't do a search, but I wonder if that's where we get our word for penny or pennies. That's not the word that's used here. That's a word kind of for general poverty, not having enough resources. This is a more desperate word. This is a word that literally means destitute. 
Smyrna was a very wealthy city. When it was reborn, it had all this help from the government and it was got going. You're gonna see in a little bit, it had all these temples and lots and lots and lots of money and resources, but not the believers in Smyrna. The believers in Smyrna are struggling. They're struggling hard and they don't have enough. Not only do they have enough, they are truly destitute. I heard about some of our, uh, some of our members who just got back from Haiti. And um, apparently there are a number of Haitians who were born in the Dominican Republic and were kicked out of the DR. And um, they're like refugees and they have nowhere to go. They have no home. They have no family. Some who were born in the DR don't even speak the Creole Haitian language. They speak Spanish. You're talking about a poor, destitute town. That would be like what Smyrna was like. These people are struggling. And yet Jesus looks at them and says, but you are rich. It would have been an irony to them. What do you mean I'm rich? I mean, all my friends have iPhones and TVs and, and computers and, and cars, Jesus. Like, how can you say I'm rich? That might not exactly be what they said, but it would have been something similar. Look at their clothes, Jesus. Look at their resources, Jesus. They go on nice vacations to Ephesus. Like, look at all the things they do, Jesus. We have nothing. We're struggling to survive. Don't you care? And Jesus says, oh, I care greatly. You are so rich. Though you have nothing, you are so rich. Why? Because you have me, and I'm enough. You don't need those things. They don't last. I do. Verse 11. No, verse 9. Sorry. I know the blasphemy of those opposing you, and they say they are Jews, but they are not, because their synagogue belongs to Satan. I want to address something in this text, and it may you know, cause some of you to be confused or maybe even frustrate some of you because you've heard something else throughout your life growing up in a church. And I just want to, I just want to ask you real quick, just tune in for a second. Wrestle with what I'm about to say, okay? Wrestle with it. In fact, there's a group of people in the Bible called the Bereans. And the Bereans actually go search out the things that Paul are telling them. And they go and look into it and they find out that Paul is right. I just encourage you to go look into what I'm about to say. And if you conclude that I'm wrong, fine. In ancient Smyrna, there are two difficulties for the people. The first difficulty, I love the way William Barclay says this, Smyrna had two characteristics which made life for the Christians a constant and continued peril. Number one, Smyrna was one of the great centers of Caesar worship. Let me just describe that before I get to this thing that's going to frustrate some of you. Caesar worship, see I'm just dragging you along. If I can just get you to the middle of the sermon, you're stuck, right? So Caesar worship developed a couple hundred years before Jesus. And here's how it worked at first. You know, Caesar uh, was the leader of Rome, the emperor of Rome. Rome came in and followed the Greece, and Greece had followed Palestine, Palestine followed Babylon, and you've got these continuing kingdoms. And as each kingdom came in and conquered the other, it changed things a little bit. Well, Rome came in, and they made things so good for everybody. In fact, in what we call the intertestamental period, the period between Malachi, the last book of the Old Testament, and Matthew, there's roughly 450 or so, 500 years. And there's silence. There's no prophet speaking. There's nothing being done. And so it looks like God is not involved because nobody's hearing from God. But in fact, what God was doing is working through Rome to bring about what was called the Pax Romana. How many of you ever heard of the Pax Romana before? Okay, good. Half of you paid attention in history class. The Pax Romana stood for the Peace of Rome. Now, the Peace of Rome, and I'm going to summarize huge portions of history in a second, so give me grace here. The Pax Romana, what it did was brought peace to the Roman area. So as Rome came in to conquer somebody, they would say to them, hey, you can become one of us and adopt our gods, adopt our culture, adopt our language, pray, pay a tribute to Caesar, pay a tribute to Rome, and we won't smash you. If you don't, we'll crush you. 
And many nations didn't do that. And then they learned the hard way. And other people watched and said, hey, we want to be one of you. How do we honor you? So what happened as the Pax, Pax Romana came about is peace in Rome came with it. So there was unified travel. People could travel from one town to another, and as long as you were a Roman citizen, it was okay. There was safety because if you were to do something wrong, the Roman government was going to punish you. You could trust that there was somebody looking into these things. The Pax Romana brought a unified language. So now if I want to go from one town to another, I can make a lot of money because I could do business beyond just my town. So what happened was Rome prospered under the Pax Romana. In fact, it's interesting, by the way, a little side note. I don't think I said this anywhere else. Paul tells us that in the fullness of time, Jesus showed up on the scene. And the way you ought to interpret that verse is that God was working all things together to this perfect time. When you look at throughout all of history, there was never a better time in all of history for Jesus to show up and get done everything Jesus had planned than in the first century. It was amazing. Why? Because God was using Rome to accomplish his purposes. However, Rome, because of the Pax Romana, became uh, worshipped. Among the people. In fact, they started something called Caesar worship, the imperial cult, so to speak. We talked a little bit about that over the last couple of weeks. And as the imperial cult developed, not only did they worship Caesar as Lord and God, but they also started worshiping Rome. And in fact, there were three cities in the ancient days who fought for a way to, to build a temple to Rome, like a literal temple where you could go in and worship. And in fact, the city who won first, the first ones to build a temple to the Dia Roma, was guess which city? This is the second test. We're not doing well. I'm not doing well. Smyrna. So Smyrna has a temple that is literally built to what's called the Dia Roma or the goddess of Rome. It is a national cult. And here's what would happen if you were a Roman or a, a citizen in that day. You would have to go to the Dia Roma. You would have to pay a tribute. This kind of happened over time. It didn't just happen overnight. And you would show up and you'd make your sacrifice and you'd pay your tribute and you'd sign on the dotted line. I worship and serve Rome. Caesar is my Lord and God. And guess what the Christians wouldn't do? The Christians wouldn't call Caesar Lord or God. They wouldn't call Rome their Lord or God. They wouldn't pay the tribute. And Rome saw this as an act of disunity. They saw this as treason. And do you know what they called the Christians? Atheists. How dare you not bow down to our God? How dare you not honor the one who's done so much for you? And they wouldn't bow down and they wouldn't do it. The second thing that made being a Christian in Smyrna very, very difficult was what John says here, and that was the Jews. And this is the part of contention for some of you because you struggle to get this. Back in the Old Testament, God goes to a man named Abram, and he tells him, Abraham, he changes his name later, Abraham, I'm going to make you the father of many nations, and through you all nations will be blessed. And that was fulfilled through Jesus the Messiah. Now, where people get messed up today as they are hanging on to a Jewish descent as the people of God. The people of God were always those who worshiped God. The people of God are those who follow God in faith. And there is no other name under heaven whereby we can be saved than whose name? Jesus. None. Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no one goes to the Father except through me. He didn't say no one unless you're born of Abraham. No one, 
The only way to God the Father is through Jesus the Son. And I don't know why. I don't have time now. I hope later in our second part of Revelation, I'll get into this more, why we are obsessed with building a new temple in Israel. And I don't mean we because we are not. Some Christians are so obsessed with building a new temple in Israel. Why would we ever want anybody to replace a temple where Jesus became the final sacrifice is beyond me. He is the last, the final sacrifice. There is no sacrifice left for sins, Hebrews says, once we come to a knowledge of him. Friends, you have no hope. Your family being good enough, your bank account, all your wealth or success or money in this earth is not going to get it done. If the Jews cannot be saved by their connection to Abraham, you certainly can't be by your connection to your grandparents or your parents or your pastor or whatever it is that you're clinging to for hope. Your only hope is the name of Jesus Christ. And the Jews in Smyrna were the second reason it was hard to be a Christian in Smyrna because the Jews had special privilege. They'd work things out with Rome. They didn't have to bow down their pantheon. They could do things a little different. As long as they would approach things, still pay a tribute, they had these different options before them. But they would turn the Christians over to the Romans all the time. And they had no authority to actually punish them themselves. So they would take these Christians before the Roman government and say, see, they don't worship you. They're not one of us because we have special permission from Rome. They don't. And they would turn the Christians over and Jesus says, I know what they're doing. These people who say that they're my people, they're not my people. Look at verse uh, 10. Don't be afraid of what you're about to suffer. The devil will throw some of you into prison to test you. You will suffer for 10 days. But if you remain faithful, even when facing death, I will give you the crown of life. Let's actually take this verse from the bottom and work our way backwards just to drive some of the OCD people in the room crazy. We'll do that again later today. I will give you the crown of life. There's two words for crown in the Greek, and one of them is the phrase diadem, and it literally stands for a gold crown like a king would wear, and that's not the one that's used here. The other one refers to the crown that you would receive at the end of the games. If you don't know anything about ancient Greece and Rome, uh, they were all about Olympic games. It'd be like football in America. Maybe this would be like soccer, which I don't get in other countries. But regardless, some of you love soccer. I'm sorry. I didn't mean to offend you. Regardless, this is that kind of crown. How do you win that crown? You got to compete and you got to win. This is huge because part of what Jesus is saying is implied here. For those who actually enter into the race, for those who actually train, by the way, you don't dare go run a marathon, do you, today if you're not in shape? You don't dare do that. So what do you do? You get training. You start to prepare your heart. You know, Paul talks about this, right? I run this race called life, this life race called faith. I run it. As a man who's, who's not just shadow boxing, I'm actually training myself for something. I run it to win the crown. What crown? The crown of life. The one that Jesus promises us for those who cross that finish line and persevere to the end. And we don't quit no matter how hard it is, no matter how, press, how much pressure is on us, no matter how much our body is strained, no matter how much we must suffer. I'm going to cross that finish line. And when I get there, I'm going to hear Jesus say, well done, good and faithful servant. You've been faithful with a few things. Now here are many things for me to charge you with. Now, I want you to get that crown, but you don't get it if you quit. You don't get it if you don't run. You only get it if you finish the race. Now, let's go back to the first part of the verse. And I realize a lot of different good godly men and scholars and women scholars uh, understand some of these things a little differently. We'll get into some of that later. This is where I land, and here's why. Jesus says, you're going to be tempted, tested for how long? Ten days. Biblically, anybody know the connection to this? Yell it out if you know it. 
Man, i got to teach the Bible better. Okay. <laughs> Nobody's passed this test yet. Somebody knew the answer. They didn't want to say it, I'll bet. All right, Daniel chapter 1, verse 11 says this. Daniel spoke with the attendant who had been appointed by the chief of staff to look after Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, otherwise known as Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Please test us for... Okay, some of you are with me? On a diet of vegetables and water. At the end of the 10 days, see how we look compared to the other young men who are eating the king's food. Then make your decision in light of what you see. The attendant agreed to Daniel's suggestion and he tested them for 10 days. At the end of the 10 days, Daniel and his three friends looked healthier, better nursed than the young men who had been eating the food assigned by the king. So after that, the attendant fed them only vegetables instead of the food and wine provided for the others. What is Jesus saying to the church in Smyrna? Start eating vegetables. Okay, it's not what he's saying. <laughs> what Jesus is saying to the church in Smyrna. Now get this. This is, this is one of the things you got to grasp. The church of Smyrna didn't have what we call the New Testament today. The way the New Testament was written is men like Paul wrote letters to say the church in Ephesus or to Timothy or they wrote letters to the church in Corinth or Mark and Luke's gospel were written to their respective people. And what happened is a church would get it and when a Christian would go from one town to another, an elder or a bishop, he would take a letter, he would write down what was taken and he'd take it to a new church. And so over time, these letters were copied and spread, but there was no church at that time that had all the copies of all the letters. That came about in a roughly 250 to 350 AD. So a couple hundred years after this, that came together. So these churches, do you know where they got their primary teachings about God? What we would call the Old Testament. They studied the Old Testament combined with the, uh, the, the prophets, or sorry, the apostles' teaching, and those the apostles had trained up, men like Timothy, to teach them about Jesus, and then whatever written letters they had. So their knowledge of God came from studying, pouring their hearts and their minds into what we call the Old Testament, which most of us skip because we don't know what to do with. They were well acquainted with the book of Daniel. So when John writes to them and tells them, you're going to be tested for 10 days, to them it would have been a connection. In fact, in Jewish culture in that day, there was this motif, there was this understanding, this kind of the, this cultural language among Jews about attesting and attesting they might say would last 10 days it wasn't intended to be literal it was intended to be this thing you are going to be pressed however that pressing is going to have a beginning and it's going to have an end I'm going to limit it throughout Revelation you're going to see Jesus limit the pain and the suffering and you're still going to ask this question, Jesus, why allow any war or famine or disease? But at one point, you're going to hear this voice from heaven, and it's literally going to cap. This much can happen, but I'm stopping it there. Why? Because even though it looks like the world is out of control, God is sovereign. And he won't allow the testing to go beyond what you can bear. 1 Corinthians 10.13, I believe it is. It might be 13.10. I'll have to get it mixed up. Paul says, but when you are tempted, God will give you a way out so you can stand up under it. James in 4, 7, and 8 says this, draw near to God. He'll draw near to you. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. In other words, there's a testing that's coming and it's allowed by God, but stand up under it. Don't quit. You're not allowed to quit. Jump down here. Revelation 2, 11. Anyone with ears to hear must listen to the Spirit and understand what he's saying to the churches. Whoever is victorious will not be harmed by the second death. I don't have a lot of time to go into this. It deserves more time than I have to give it, which is why later in the series we'll get to this many, many times. At the end of your last brave brain wavelength, at the end of your last heartbeat, at the end of your last breath, sooner or later it's going to come. It's going to come in a different way for all of us. But when it does come, however it comes, on the other side of that is two options. 
And it's too late to decide at that point which option you get. But it's either option A, eternal life, or option B, death. And I gotta be honest, we'll deal with this later. There's a ton of symbolism as it relates to hell and the final judgment. And I don't know exactly what all that symbolism means, the place where worms do not destroy, the place where there's weeping and gnashing of teeth. All I know is every single description of hell is bad. And it's real. And I don't want you to go there at all. But between this moment right now and your last moment, life is going to be a test for you. And it's a test allowed by God to discern who's in and who's out. Here's the reality, guys. As you read Revelation, you read your New Testament, God is not going to protect you from the pain of life because the pain of life will either draw you closer to him or it'll reveal how much you really do or don't love him. That's it. Jesus says, I'll know those who love me because they will obey me. In other words, just because life gets hard because your spouse does dumb things because your boss acts like a meanie, just because someone sins against you, just because you're tempted to want more, whatever it is, whatever the pressure, the testing, the pressure, the judgment, the persecution that comes against you, you still must hang on to faith and by faith acting the right way in the wrong world. And in the end, eternal life for those who do. There's a guy, his name is Polycarp. You can go look him up later. You can look up everything I'm about to tell you. Polycarp was the bishop of Smyrna. We believe, based off historical writings, Polycarp was actually appointed the bishop of Smyrna by John the Apostle. In fact, he's the last known church father to have any contact with an apostle. Polycarp died, I believe it was in 55 AD, and I believe this, the writings about him came, I believe, in 60 AD. I could be off on a little bit there, but Polycarp, as the bishop of Smyrna, would have received this letter from John, and he would have read it and poured over it, and he would have known exactly what John was talking about. The persecutions became so great. You may have heard of the Colosseum. Many Christians were taken into various sundry places, and they were, they were uh, attacked by wild animals, sometimes pulled to shreds by these lions and tigers and bears. Oh, my. In fact, one guy, if I'm remembering this correctly, is a guy named Germanicus, and Germanicus was actually taken in, and he literally offered his own life to try to buy time for some of the others. He literally ran away from the others so that the animals would come after him and chase him. He also was the first to go to go home. Germanicus knew what he was doing. There were other believers around Polycarp's time, we are told, who uh, were taken, and they actually surrendered when they were being pressured. They were being looked for, and they surrendered except for that as the Roman government put pressure on them to bow down to Caesar, some of them actually caved in and announced Caesar is Lord and Rome is goddess. So Polycarp, when it became his time, he wanted to stay in Smyrna, and the believers urged him to leave. He finally left, but he was 86 years old. He didn't go very far very fast, but they kept following him. He kept going from house to house. They couldn't find him. They finally tracked him down, and um, they finally, sorry, they tracked down one of the houses he was in, and they found two young believers, and they persecuted them until they confessed where Polycarp was. And so they went to Polycarp's house, and they sent in these sheriff's policemen, so to speak, to get him. When they came to the door, Polycarp came down. He'd already had a dream, according to history. We don't know if this is true. He'd already had a dream that his pillow was on fire, and he began to tell people that he believed he was going to be burned at the stake for God. And so Polycarp came down and invited the men into the home and asked if he could make them food. 
He had food prepared for them and fed them a meal. These policemen were blown away by Polycarp's gentleness, kindness, and love, knowing why they're there. In fact, it baffled them. Why would anybody arrest this man? And he asked them for only one favor. Can I have an hour to pray before you take me? And they agreed because he was so kind and gentle. And right there, he gets up off the ground. He begins to pray, not for one hour, for two. Right there, out loud. And when I read this story, my heart was heavy because I struggle sometimes to pray for 30 minutes focused. And here's Polycarp at the end of his life, so connected to his Savior, so intimately involved with John's letter to Smyrna. And they lead him out, and he goes before the proconsul, and the proconsul says, you're an old man. Just admit, just call Caesar Lord, just do it and be done with it. Just denounce these Christians and call them atheists already. But come on, your body can't handle what we're going to do to you. And here was Polycarp's answer. Eighty and six years have I served Christ, and he has never done me wrong. How can I blaspheme my king who saved me? They began to increase the threats. We're going to send out animals. They're going to tear you to shreds. So? No, 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 no. We're not going to send animals. We're going to do worse than that. We're going to burn you at the stake. Polycarp answers, it is well. I fear not the fire that burns for a season and after a while is quenched. Why do you delay? Come, do your will. Do you hear the confidence? He's not worried about the first death because he knows about the second one and that one's not going to touch him. The full quote by Polycarp, I love this, I didn't put it in there, but the full quote by Polycarp in that moment according to history is this, you threaten me with fire which burns for an hour and is then extinguished, but you know nothing of the fire of the coming judgment and eternal punishment reserved for the ungodly. Why are you waiting? Bring on whatever you want. Do you hear his boldness? He's not backing down. He's not changing the gospel to make it easier. He's right in the face of his persecutors saying, you need to get right with God because what you're about to do to me, it'll be over. The worst you can do is torture me for an hour and then I'll be done. And then he said this, I thank thee that thou hast graciously thought me worthy of this day and of this hour that I may receive a portion in the number of the martyrs and the cup of thy Christ. Polycarp read Revelation, and he knows the future things that are coming in Revelation, the things we'll talk about later, about those who are martyrs, those who are witnesses. That's what the word martyr literally means, those who are witnesses for Christ and those who cost them their life and the prominent position they are given by Christ when on that last day he says, well done. You completed the task I gave you, and you did not bend, and you did not Let me just pray for a moment. Now, we're going to get into Philadelphia, and I'm running behind, so let's go. Jesus, help us to be a people who, under the face of pressure and persecution and struggle and poverty, may we worship Jesus in actions and in truth. In Jesus' name, amen. The city of Philadelphia, Revelation chapter 3, verse 7. Now, for all of you who are OCD, you're like, wait a minute, we just skipped a whole bunch. Yep, we're looking at the second church and the sixth church because they're the only two churches that receive no condemnation from Jesus. They're the only two churches who only get pats on the back and exhortation to continue. Revelation 3, 7a, write this letter to the angel of the church in Philadelphia. Philadelphia was originally created as a city by Greek culture. If you look on a map, it's kind of out a ways from the, from the kind of water, and it's out in a ways, and it's by like this 
kind of rough and wild, rugged area. Remember, part of the Pax Romana, part of that Greco-Roman culture was to spread Roman culture, Hellenistic culture throughout the area. Philadelphia was literally created by a guy who had this deep love for his brother. It's where we get the name City of Brotherly Love. And it was created to spread Hellenistic culture to these wild, kind of nomadic, unculturalized people groups. That's important for what we're about to see. Revelation 3, 7b. This is the message from the one who is holy and true, the one who has the key of David. What he opens, no one can close, and what he closes, no one can open. You've heard this phrase before, right? Take it differently and out of context, but if God opens a door or God closes a door, he does what? He opens another one. See, you've seen that on Facebook too. Except it's not exactly what's going on here. Part of what's going on here, let's talk about the David part first. If you remember all the way back to the Old Testament, there's a king. His name is David. He's the second king. The first king, Saul, is bad. David is a good man. He's a godly man, but he makes a lot of mistakes. But God comes to David and says, David, because you're a man after my own heart, I'm going to make one of your descendants sit on your throne forever, for eternity. Well, everybody knows it wasn't Solomon. He came. He died. We all know it's the Messiah, whose name was Jesus. And Jesus is seated on David's throne, is what John is saying here, and he has a key. And the thing is, here's the important thing. What Jesus opens, no one can shut. What Jesus shuts, no one can open. It's a statement of sovereignty and power. You don't have to stress about anything going on with your spouse or your boss or your kids or the government or anywhere else, the Supreme Court. It doesn't matter because what God does happens, period. End of question. Now, did God make all these bad things happen? No. But in the same way that Philadelphia was located out in the middle of kind of this area to spread Greco-Roman Hellenistic culture to all these wild, uh, unculturalized people, the church was placed in Philadelphia to do the same thing. Are you with me? Let me show this to you. There's two places. It's actually three. I'm just going to show you two. There's two places where the idea of door is used in connection this way. Look at Paul, 1 Corinthians chapter 16, verse 8. Paul writes this, and I'll see if I can make sense of this. In the meantime, Paul says, I will be staying here at Ephesus until the festival of Pentecost. There was a wide open door for a great work here, although many oppose me. What Paul is writing to the church in Corinth is, look, I'm in Ephesus, and things are hard. There's lots of people coming against me. The persecution's great, but don't worry about it, guys, because God's opened doors nobody else could open. So I'm going to be here no matter how hard it gets. I got a job to do. Now think about how that applies to Philadelphia. You're in a city. It's hard. The believers are struggling. They're facing persecution, but God has opened doors for you to share the gospel. Share it, and don't stress about it, because nobody can close the doors of God open. Do you see it? Here's the other one. 2 Corinthians 2, 12 and 13. When I came into the city of Troas to preach the good news of Christ, the Lord did what? Opened a door of opportunity for me. But I had no peace of mind because my dear brother Titus didn't yet arrive with a report from you. So I said goodbye and I went on to Macedonia to find him. In other words, when God is open, no one's closing. And when Paul's in his city, he's always looking for the open door. Paul just assumes, like many of us fail to assume, that God has a plan for his life. Read Acts chapter 17, and I believe it's Paul before the Athenians, and he's saying to them, you live in the exact times and dates and places where you live on purpose. There's nothing happening on accident. And God has placed every single one of you in your family, in your culture, your community, your school, your job, your family, your town, so that you might come to know him. And when you start to believe that, it changes the way you look at the world. 
Now, every conversation you're in is a bridge, is a door that either God is opening or God is closing. It's an opportunity not for you to get richer. It's an opportunity not for you to be happier. It's an opportunity for you to be more faithful to him, no matter how hard or how easy. Look for the open door. Revelation chapter 3, verse 8. I know all the things you do. Do you hear the intimate knowledge of Jesus about what's going on in their lives? I know. And I have opened a door for you that no one can close. You have little strength, yet you have obeyed my word and did not deny me. Look, I will force those who belong to Satan's synagogue, those liars who say they are Jews but are not, to come and bow down at your feet. They will acknowledge that you are the ones I love. I wish I had more time to go into this. I don't, but let me just say a couple things real quick. Number one, I believe with all my heart this is both eternal and it's here in this life. And here's what I mean by that. I believe that when people are coming at you and they're being rude, they're being mean, they're being attacking, your job is to love them. Jesus says, pray for your enemies. Bless them. And you go, who in the world does that? And God says, I do. You were once my enemy. Do you know what I did for you? I took care of you. I provided rain and food and sustenance, and then I provided my son to save you. You do for your enemies what I've done for you. And in doing this, one of two things is going to happen. Either they're going to see your good deeds, your good life, and praise God in this life for you, or after the end of their last breath, when every knee bows and every tongue confesses, and you are literally reigning with Christ, and they're bowing down to him, they're going to have to acknowledge that he loved you even though they treated you like trash. Your hope, by the way, your best hope is that your greatest enemy repents in this life because you don't want the second death for anybody. Trust me on this. So you don't get in their face and yell and scream and condemn. What you do is you preach the truth and love. You live love. You give. You pray for. You bless. What did Polycarp do when they came to take him away? He prepared a meal and said, let's do this. And when he's called to repent and turn away from Jesus, he said, uh-uh. Kill me. You can do whatever you want, buddy. The judgment that's coming is worse than what you're about to do to me. He did not speak the truth, but he did it in love. He did it in kindness. Do this for your enemies, and they will have to acknowledge that God is with you. Now, the second thing I want to point out is the phrase door is actually used in another context in the gospel, and I believe Jesus is using it for both reasons here. Scholars love to debate, is it this, is it this, is it this? We love reductionism. Who's the greatest quarterback of all time? Everybody knows it's... See, exactly, that's the problem. And we love to do that with the scriptures. This either means this or it means this. It has to mean this or it means that. I think it means both in this context. Here's the passage, John chapter 10. Those who heard Jesus use this illustration, sorry, verse 6, didn't understand what he meant, so he explained it to them. I tell you the truth, I am the gate for the sheep. All who came before me were thieves and robbers, but the true sheep did not listen to them. Yes, I am the gate. Those who come in through me will be what? saved they will come and go freely and will find good pastures the thief's purpose is to steal and kill and destroy but my purpose is to give them a rich and satisfying life in ancient israel when you were a shepherd you would try to put your sheep in an area that was kind of closed in and in this case jesus is saying i'm the gate i'm literally laying my life down at the gate anybody wants to come in if a wolf or a bear or 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 a lion think about now what they're going through If one of these wild animals wants to come in and attack you, don't worry about it. I got your back. In fact, it's my life being laid down at the gate. You will come in over me, and ain't nobody else coming over except over my dead body. Literally. I'm the door 
And I believe what Jesus is saying through John and Revelation to the church in Philadelphia is even if it costs you your life, you hang on because I've opened a door to salvation and nobody's closing my door. Nobody. They're going to threaten you. They're going to threaten your family. They're going to threaten to take things away from you. But it doesn't matter what they threaten. What I have opened, no one's shutting. And if I have given up my life to save you and I have placed you in a town and a place and a family and a job for a purpose, nobody's going to change that. Nobody. It's a statement of confidence that these people can hang on to when life is hard. And life is hard in Philadelphia. Read verse 10. Because you have obeyed my command to persevere, I will protect you from the great time of testing that will come upon the whole world to test those who belong to this world. Do you realize that a test only reveals who you are and who you love? That's what a test does. A test reveals whether you are prepared. And by the way, if not, you'll fail the test. And then you have a choice, repent or not. I was reading the, the letters uh, from... Um, ah, that, I can't think of the name of them now. The, the martyr, Christian Martyr Organization puts out the magazines... Voice of the Martyrs. I, heard, I, I knew somebody would know it. Voice of the Martyrs. I was reading this a few months ago, and there were these two ladies who, were, who had escaped from ISIS. And in the midst of the persecution, they had denied Jesus. And now they were being taken care of by Christians who were washing their feet and cleaning them up and trying to care for them. And these two ladies were repenting with deep sorrow. And Jesus gave them a second chance, and they're going to get it right this time. Failure doesn't have to be the last thing you do. It's never too late to turn and receive hope. Verse 11, I am coming soon. Hold on to what you have so that no one will take away your crown. All who are victorious will become pillars in the temple of my God, and they will never have to leave it. Let's just stop there for a minute. First of all, this isn't intended to be taken literally. It's apocalyptic literature. You don't die and get saved by Jesus and then go to heaven. You're like standing there holding up the roof like, Oh, man, I'm so tired. I had to do this forever. Whew, we're second shift. <laughs> if you read later in Revelation, the new city, the new Jerusalem comes down, and there is no temple. But Jesus, did you forget that? No, you're missing. It's a point. It's a picture. You will be something solid, standing under the weight in his kingdom in heaven. You get it? But here's the other thing going on. In 17 AD, there was a bunch of earthquakes that destroyed... Uh, uh, Sardis, we'll get to that in a, in a week or two. Sardis, though, the, sorry, the same earthquakes also destroyed Philadelphia. They kept getting the aftershocks of the tremors. What happens if you're in a building and there's an earthquake? What do you do? You run outside the building as fast as you can. In fact, history tells us the earthquakes were so bad that the town was literally destroyed in 17 AD. Rome had to come in and rebuild the city. In fact, Rome gave a ton of money to rebuild the city. But in the process of that, these people probably started struggling with PTSD. They're really gripping, coming to grips with this constant fear. You hear a noise, uh, maybe a thunder or something loud outside, and you just run outside the house. People literally started living in the fields. And what does Jesus tell them? When the new heaven and the new earth comes, you'll never have to what? leave. Jesus is saying to them, the world you live in right now, it's not right. Paul said this in Romans 8, because of sin, the world is out of control. It's not the way God built it originally. So now there are tornadoes, and there are earthquakes, and there are volcanoes, and there's flooding. And some of you may be experiencing this as your farmers and whatever, and your house is ruined. And you're thinking, God, what's wrong? Have you lost control? And God's saying, the world is not the way I built it originally, but I am redeeming it. And when I do redeem it, you'll never have to run out of it anymore because it'll be totally safe and there'll be no more earthquake and there'll be no more tornado and there'll be no more volcanoes. Do you hear that? 
And if you believe it, then hang on to it. Verse 12. All who are victorious will become pillars in the temple of my God and they don't never have to leave it. And I will write on them the name of my God and they will be citizens in the city of my God, the new Jerusalem that comes down from heaven from my God. And I will also write on them my new name. After Philadelphia was destroyed in 17 AD and it got rebuilt, do you know what they nicknamed the city? The new city of Caesar. And Jesus says, you don't pay attention to that imperial worship. You don't pay attention to their money and all the stuff they've rebuilt among you. You live in a city that's called the new city of Caesar, but I'm telling you, I'm bringing the new Jerusalem and it's coming down from heaven. And you don't put your hope in the things you see in this world. You put your hope in me. Verse 13, anyone with ears to hear must listen to the spirit and understand what he is saying to the churches. I don't know exactly where this message is gonna hit you. For some of you, it's gonna be conviction. You've been tempted to quit. For some of you, it's conviction. You've been turning away from Jesus to sin. For others of you, it's encouragement. You've been holding on in the face of persecution. And Jesus is patting you on the back and saying, persevere, 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 don't quit. But I know this. One day when I get there and I hear Jesus, I want to hear him speak of me like Smyrna and Philadelphia and not like Ephesus and Laodicea. I don't want to hear him say, if you don't repent, I'll just remove you. I want to hear him say, well done. So what business do you need to do with God? If you're playing games with your faith, stop. I'm terrified to think what might happen to you on that last day. Stop. Return to him. He is faithful and good. He will forgive your sins if, you're, if you confess them. We're gonna pray, and when I'm done praying, we're gonna sing, and while we sing, if you're ready to give your life to Christ, there were, I think, five baptisms after the last service. I think there's one more after this. There were 11 last week. Yeah, give God the glory. Honestly, guys, Mark Notter, Todd Allen, Lisa Johnson, uh, Maggie Andrews, Jess, they all deserve a ton of credit because a lot of those were decisions coming out of camps and, and CIYs and things this summer. They've been working their tail ends off. They're hurting for sleep. A lot of you went with them on those things. God gets all the glory. Maybe today is your day. I, I, I'm terrified to think about you going home today and not making this decision. If you're ready, when we're singing, you just come over here to my left, your right, underneath the screen and say, I'm ready to give my life to Jesus. We'll make it happen. So I'll stand, I'll pray. Oh, great God and King, Lord, my prayer is twofold right now. First, God, you are the great shepherd who lays down his life for the sheep. God, I pray right now. There are some on the outside who need safekeeping. They need you. The enemy is in their life trying to steal, kill, and destroy. And even as I say this, they're just trying to figure out how to get out of here so they don't have to wrestle with you. God, I pray right now, would you convict them? Would you move in their heart? Would you bring them into the fold, so to speak, into the gate, through the life of Jesus, that they might have eternal life with you, reigning with you forever? And God, secondly, my prayer right now, God, would you please, for those who are believers, God, would you... Open doors that only you want to open. Doors to do your will, to carry out the gospel being spread and show us, God, what to do and how to do it. 
God, the doors you want shut, would you help us to swallow our selfish pride that wants what we want regardless of what you want and would you slam those shut never to be opened again. We love you and we praise you in Jesus' name.